0: Today's episode is taken from various works of Carlo Ginsburg and Elmar Lori. Today's episode contains descriptions of violence against women and children. Please use discretion before listening. Do you ever feel like you're reading something in history, and feel like you've taken crazy pills? Like, you look at somebody else and say, are you reading this? Am I crazy? And sometimes it's a particular event, or a particular passage, or a person. Like, I read anything related to certain subjects, like medieval medicine, or Rasputin, and I'm just like, I'm sorry, what was that? I gotta reread that. And I love those moments, because they're the moments history really comes alive, but sometimes... Sometimes there's those moments when I turn to ask someone if I'm taking crazy pills and I realize that I'm not the one with the crazy pills. By which I mean, some subjects I've studied turn out to be hot-button issues with fringe societies and conspiracy groups. And in current events, that's something you find in those groups pretty quickly. You know, like 9-11, UFOs, QAnon, Flat Earth. But it's always something else entirely when you find them in history. In certain subjects, you kind of expect them. Any time someone is assassinated, for example, or there's a political revolution or some sort of leap forward in science. You know, you've heard the sayings, pyramids were created by aliens, JFK was killed by Russia, the Masons and Illuminati founded America, that sort of thing. It's a totally different feeling, though, when you're researching an innocuous topic and you find yourself waist-deep in it. Like, going back to medieval medicine, there was once I was researching on the subject of ingredients that they used— and once ended up in a Facebook group talking about how drinking urine is medically good for you. So sometimes there's just certain topics in history that you can't research without bumping into crazy. So all that to say, I've had a topic in mind since the inception of this podcast, one that I thought would be a lot of fun to dive into because of the weirdness surrounding it. Except the problem was, every time I'd go and try to do some deep research on the subject, I'd end up in crazy town. It started out pretty small. When I was researching medieval serial killers, I noticed this interesting trend of all these different men that continued all the way into the 19th century, that many of these killers who had murdered, butchered, cannibalized, and even processed human remains claimed the same crackpot plea. They claimed that they were werewolves. And the first time I thought, huh, that's interesting. The second time I thought, I'm sorry, what? And by the third, I was like, oh, this is great material for a podcast until I started digging deeper because it turns out this is a subject that has been touched only broadly by historians and only local historians have really done good research. Okay, difficult to research, still doable. Then I began to run into a major problem. A lot of these people who claimed to be writing nonfiction research weren't. A lot of these were folklorists who to them, what we would call myth and reality was just reality. These were people who took, at face value, the existence of werewolves. So when they write about these historical events, they don't separate Crazy Town from historical fact. And by the way, if you're one of these people currently listening, having stumbled onto this podcast, let me go ahead and say I'm working off a pretty well-founded assumption werewolves aren't real. So then on top of that, I discovered that in some respects, though, they were correct. Because it turns out that clinical lycanthropy is a real psychological delusion to that psychologists diagnosed to describe people who truly believe they transform into animals, even though they don't. And as it turns out, some of these cases might have involved people historically who actually believe they were werewolves. Or maybe they just claimed that to get out of legal jeopardy. Are you starting to see the problem I was having here? Now at this point, it's been almost a year of casually dipping into research and trying to separate historical fact from, well, I don't know how else to say it, a conspiracy theory? Enthusiast fiction? Psychological study? Finally, I've said screw it. We're going to do it all. I'm going to do my damnedest to navigate this field of crackpot fiction to find the real facts, because if there's one thing that I've determined, it's this. There really have been many cases of murderers claiming lycanthropy in history, whether under duress or delusion. And there may be psychological characteristics or a pathology that connects at least some of them. And for that strangeness alone, I think it's time we journeyed into the weird world of werewolves in history. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. In 1852, Manuel Blanco Romasanta was arrested in the countryside of Nombella, Spain, after a report by citizens stated that seven women and two children had disappeared from the area around Escalonia. Romasanta had been hired as a guide for them, helping them travel to and from cities in the province of Toledo. He later directly delivered letters supposedly written by these travelers to their families about their new lives. However... None of them had been seen physically since their departure with Roma Santa. Furthermore, Romasanta had begun to sell clothing in the region, clothing for women and children. He'd also begun to sell soap, commonly made from animal fat at the time. But on this suspicious evidence, he was taken to Alariz for trial. It was there that he admitted to their murders. However, his defense stunned the public. He claimed that he was cursed with being a werewolf. In his trial, he said under oath, The first time I transformed was in the mountains of Kuoso. I came across two ferocious-looking wolves. I suddenly fell to the floor and began to feel convulsions. I rolled over three times, and a few seconds later, I myself was a wolf. I was out marauding with the other two for five days until I returned to my own body, the one that you see before you today, Your Honor. The other two wolves came with me. Who I thought were also wolves and changed into human form. They were from Valencia. One was called Antonio and the other Don Gennaro. They too were cursed. We attacked and ate a number of people because we were hungry. He had been murdering women and children and making soap out of their human fat as well as butchering their flesh and cannibalizing it. If he could prove that he was a victim of lycanthropy as a real physical condition, he would be declared innocent, but when the prosecution demanded that he transform before the court to showcase his innocence, he claimed that the curse had expired last week. Go figure. Roma Santa was found guilty of nine murders, with four others having been judged as having died in real wolf attacks. He was sentenced to die by garroting. In a surprising twist, a French hypnotist by the name Mr. Phillips wrote to the Spanish Minister of Justice claiming that Romasanta may be suffering from a medical condition of the mind. Mr. Phillips' real name is unknown, but it was suspected he was Joseph Pierre Durand de Grosse, a famous doctor who influenced the development of psychoanalytics. By this point, the idea of lycanthropy as a clinical condition of the mind had spread. A small percentage of people believed lycanthropy was a real mental condition, a sort of delusion that would occur in one's mind, that people believing they were transforming into animals when in reality it was just a figment of their imagination. Phillips was convinced that he could treat the condition through hypnotherapy, so the Minister of Justice convinced Queen Isabella II to commute the death sentence to life imprisonment. It is unknown what happened to Romasanta after his transfer to prison. Some believe he died only months later after being shot by a guard who goaded him to shapeshift in front of him. The public at large began to believe in the existence of Sacamentecas, fat extractors, who murdered children for their fat to sell at Marca. It's telling that Romasanta was not the only criminal charged with selling fat during the Victorian age made from humans. Now how the hell did we get here? To a modern age where... Werewolves are believed to still exist, even if not in the physical sense, then at least within the mind. Okay, so to be clear, I do not believe in werewolves. Uh Uh-uh. No way. I'm making that irrevocably clear because someone is going to message me on social media believing I do. Now, with that out of the way, just because we in society think werewolves are as real as Santa Claus doesn't mean it's always been that way. Before the Middle Ages, Transformation into animals had been written about extensively in mythology and literature, and in ancient Greek and Roman mythology, specific examples were given describing people transforming into wolves. Herodotus mentioned in his histories about a tribe in Scythia that transformed into wolves and back again. Ovid, Virgil, and Pliny the Elder all mentioned tales of lycanthropy. And this isn't especially surprising. People talked about the metamorphosis of humans into natural objects all the time, and wolves were common throughout Europe. They were especially feared by the rural public. In numbers, they could threaten human beings, and they were inedible and many were rabid. For example, in France alone, from 1362 to 1918, about 7,600 people were killed by wolves, with just under half being rabid wolves. Also unsurprisingly, wolves were mostly inhabitants of the thick forests in Europe, and so they had their own little mysterious persona around them. The forest held all sorts of secrets in their dark recesses. Werewolves could just be one of many. But before the 13th century, very few European texts actually talked about werewolves. Besides those examples I've already mentioned, they're sort of left alone in history, although literature picks them up every once in a while. But during the Middle Ages, belief in werewolves rose sharply. This can be partly attributable to the general increase in the belief of the supernatural. We've talked about that on the show before, about beliefs in alchemy, demonology, witches, blood ritual, the works. So it's not that surprising that beliefs in lycanthropes also begin to permeate society. In fact, Elmar Lory, a German journalist, describes how modern predilections of superstition cannot be applied to the people of the past, because the people of the past simply didn't understand the natural world as separate from the supernatural world. To them, belief in one presupposed a belief in the other. From Lori quote, The ambivalent image of the werewolf, which was so real that it could still be heard before the courts in the 17th century, can only be understood on the background of the possibilities of thought and interpretation of this epoch. In this worldview, the reality of human beings is not just the tangible reflection of everyday life. To this reality belonged as self-evident and barely questionable the hidden, the extra-normal world, the invisible world behind the world, and the passages there. The incomprehensible mixture of spiritual and material, natural and supernatural beliefs, which we commonly refer to as superstition, because to us, it does not seem to fit into a logically coherent and consistent worldview, it was very consistent and plausible to the people of the time. What modern and enlightened people today describe as a hoax, uneducated, simple-minded, or gullible, hardly captures anything of how people experience themselves. One might have been astonished by the possibility of animal transformation because they were puzzling over God's purpose in this matter. They did not really care. And I like this last line here, quote, And it would be a mistake to assume that this view of the world would have disappeared long ago." Because we all know somebody who still sees every event in their life as reflected as part of the supernatural. They're probably the very same people that right now might actually believe in werewolves. So, it's fairly understood that the people of the Middle Ages really did believe that werewolves existed. But what's probably surprising, though, is that lycanthropy was not nearly as evil as we think of it today. Sure, they weren't exactly desirable, The word werewolf in different cultures was used as a term to distance one from the civilized world at large. Think of it like the word savage or desperado, it was like closer to that. The European world did not champion the transformation of humans into animals. It was revolting, it was disgusting, but it wasn't always evil. Each region in Europe held its own beliefs about werewolves. In the East, they were more akin to like zombies or vampires, but in the North, they were spirits that could inhabit the warriors— and in the West, they were associated with witches and warlocks. In all three of these regions, the belief in lycanthropy persisted, even among those in the faith. Some, like Johann's Frund, accept the belief that witches can turn into wolves as a fact. But what's surprising is that werewolves were not bestial creatures. They were rational, almost benevolent beings. Sometimes, they would even help the church in their fight against evil. In Jürgensburg, sixteen ninety-two, over two hundred years after the witch trials against professed werewolves had commenced, a Linovian old man named Theis confessed he was a werewolf. However, he claimed that he and other werewolves met three times a year to literally combat evil. This is taken from Carlo Ginsburg's Night Battles. Quote, three times each year on the night of Saint Lucia before Christmas of Pentecost. And of St. John, the werewolves proceeded on foot in the form of wolves to a place located beyond the sea, hell. There they battled the devil and witches, striking them with long iron rods and pursuing them like dogs. Werewolves, Thys claimed, cannot tolerate the devil. The judges, undoubtedly astonished, asked for elucidation. If werewolves could not abide the devil, why did they change themselves into wolves and go down into hell? Because, Old Theis explained, by doing so, they could bring back up to earth what had been stolen by witches, livestock, grains, and the other fruits of the earth. End quote. Theis also explains that werewolves went to heaven just like everybody else. He claimed they were the hounds of God, who were the protectors of the harvest. So too, he claimed, were the German and Russian werewolves. Theiss never claimed to have made a deal with the devil, and he was only condemned to ten lashes for his superstitious beliefs. Ginsberg claims that this was a fairly common belief in werewolves among the peasantry, if not necessarily the upper tier. That these men literally turned into wolves, none of this American werewolf in London transformation, and then protected the peasants. But a change occurred during the later Middle Ages. By the 16th century, the waning of the medieval period, reports of werewolf attacks were on the rise, as were werewolf trials. Why? The roots of this fear are intertwined with a general fear of the supernatural. And by fear, I don't mean terror or horror. More of like an anxiety of that which cannot be explained. Folk religious beliefs and superstition are part of every individual, even irreligious people. A folk practice is just one that doesn't naturally exist in the doctrine of a particular religion. It's one separate, created entirely because of culture. Like... For example, have you ever met somebody who believes in treating the Bible with respect? As in, like, the physical Bible? I'm not talking about, like, the words themselves, actually, or, like, the basic tenets of Christianity. I mean the physical pages. I've been to houses that believed that it was disrespectful to not display a Bible prominently. Or, like, if you left it on the ground, you had to pick it up and put it on the table. Says who, you ask? Well, certainly not God. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible itself. I mean, it's a collection of letters and writings from various biblical figures. I don't think they were thinking it was going to be mass-produced. It's just a cultural sign of respect. But that's the thing. It's cultural. It's not religious. And folk beliefs can be assumed as real, whether spiritual or not. And if they can be assumed as cultural, then the only way that they can be deemed heretical is if they run antithetical to spiritual beliefs. In other words, people might not like the idea of werewolves, but the only way to actually condemn a person for being a werewolf was if they broke some sort of secular law, like murdering somebody, or some sort of religious law. And that connection is precisely what built up to the early modern werewolf trial. In 1428, in Valais, Switzerland, the people were in a panic. From historical documents, it's unclear exactly what began the chain of events that would culminate in the first and one of the largest European witch trials in history. What we do know is that the Inquisition had been established in the area to combat the Waldensians, a religious group that was heretical to Catholic beliefs. It may have been related to that. But nevertheless, on August 7th, a formal proclamation was issued declaring It was decreed that if anyone or more than one person of any rank or position in any place, whether in the mountains or the plain, is found to have been slandered by magic in the distant past, or has had a recent similar complaint or grouse made about him, or them by the public talk or slander of three or four neighbors, he or they are to be arrested and imprisoned by the castellans and ecclesiastical judges who have authority and jurisdiction over them. End quote. For this supposed claims of magic, Hundreds of men and women were taken to trial over a period of 20 years, coming in two main waves in 1428 and 1434. Officially, 367 were named, but in later texts over 700 witches are mentioned, with more than 200 having been burned by 1430. These supposed witches confessed to many different supposed acts under torture, flying through the air on a wooden chair, stealing from wine cellars and drinking the wine, They were supposedly able to turn invisible through the use of herbs, cure people of their paralysis by casting it into another person, cannibalism, abduction, and eating children. Probably the weirdest, in my opinion, was the accusation that they would meet at a witch's Sabbath and listen to anti-Christian sermons from the devil himself, and pretend to confess their good deeds rather than their bad deeds. This was a wide range of supposedly magical acts, but one that was explicitly mentioned was the transformation into wolves. Taken from the report by Johanns Frund of Lucerne, 1430. Quote, There were among those many whom the evil spirit, Satan, taught the way to turn into wolves, something that they thought actually did happen to them. They were quite convinced they were wolves, and those who saw them believed that such and such a person really was a wolf at that moment. They would run after sheep, "...lambs and goats, which, in the guise of wolf, they ate raw. When they wanted to, they would become human again, just as they had been before." A few things to note in that passage. First, the language that Frond uses is that of a skeptic, that they were quite convinced those who saw them believed that they were a wolf. Not necessarily that the general public really believed that there were wolves existing, although he later takes it at face value, suggesting that he himself might have believed in lycanthropy. And do remember that most of these confessions were made either under torture or the threat of torture, so not exactly the best of circumstances. But notice that the transformation of turning into a wolf is attached to witchcraft. In other words, if a person transformed into a wolf, then they were a witch and since witchcraft was heretical, they could be tried and punished accordingly. That punishment for this multitude of hundreds was to be tied to a makeshift crucifix from a ladder. A bag of gunpowder was tied around their neck, and the ladder was tipped into a burning stake. The flames rose, and when it became hot enough, the bag of gunpowder would fizzle and detonate, hopefully decapitating the condemned victim. Most probably, they would already be passed out or dead... From the smoke and flames. This was the first of many medieval witch trials that mentioned werewolves. By the 16th century, werewolves had become synonymous with witch trials. This was especially true in the Alpine regions, where the wolf populations had exploded. The witch stereotype in these regions included the transformation into wolves. This had occurred as early as 1459, in which Katrina Simon von Steinbergen in Bavaria had confessed, quote, by means of an ointment at will, to be able to transform into a fox, a cat, or a wolf, and ride with wolves through the valleys together with four other women, End quote. supposedly in this guise, she had triggered avalanches, although it is not clear if that was on purpose or not, in the region, fortune-tellers had begun to sell their charms to the shepherds in the area to ward off wolves who might attack their flock. These wolves again were old men who could not work, and their methods of extracting money included threatening to sick wolves on the flocks themselves, in a true mafioso style. But in other regions, cries of werewolf were left unheeded. One 18th century scholar, Eberhard David Hauber, concluded, quote, "...such wolves are very scarce in the witch trials, and among a hundred men who condemn as sorcerers, hardly three or four have been found to have confessed or even been accused of having been wolves." End quote. But in the Alpine regions in Switzerland, the Holy Roman Empire, and France, there was an explosion of werewolf trials. Why? Elmar Lory probably has the best theory thus far. He cites an interesting fact, that in other places around Europe, the idea of the werewolf had permeated folkloric traditions to the point where it was being written about in literary tales, or it was passed down as an oral tradition. But in the Alpine regions, there was no trace of that before the 15th century. In other words, the figurative idea of the werewolf, like in the literature, had never before been introduced to these regions, and they were regions with heavy wolf populations. When the idea was presented, it thus caught on fire, like an actual, literal idea. And it's hard to wrap our minds around this, so let's make this a bit easier. Think of an outlandish conspiracy in the current events. Anti-vaccines. Flat Earth. The Deep State. Now imagine a good number of professionals came forward and not only professed their belief that it was true, but provided evidence to you in the form of scientific data. You can imagine that the majority of the scientific community would immediately begin analyzing that data, and after a few months they determine it's not real. But by the time that occurred, wouldn't a large portion, maybe even a majority of people, have already accepted the finding as true? Obviously, werewolf trials were not conducted with scientific data, but that sort of inherent trust in it is the sort of inherent trust the general population saw in their professionals, lawyers, clergy, inquisitors. By the late 16th and early 17th century, the proceedings were no longer being handled by ecclesiastical courts, but rather secular lawyers. Their investigations were thoroughly robust as well. They didn't just throw anybody on the rack. They needed substantial claims by witnesses before an arrest and a confession was almost always necessary to prosecute. Their questioning of the witness was thorough as well. The major problem, of course, was that the information was exacted under torture or the threat of torture, with many leading to confusing questions. Instead of a question like, what animal can you turn into, it becomes, whether a person does or does not sometimes turn into a cat or a bear or some other animal, and whether they are similar and look like such transformed animals. Tell me you wouldn't be a little confused if you were asked that while on the rack. But up until this point, werewolves were not considered murderers, just witches. And if that to us seems like a weird distinction, that's because witchcraft didn't necessarily always lead to death. Many nobility used witchcraft as a hobby, and pastime in and of itself. As we have seen in the Affair of the Poisons that we've talked about in previous episodes, some may have used it as an attempt to poison others, but others just used it like tea-leaf reading, and horoscopy. That changed with Peter Stump. Peter Stump was a German farmer in the region of Bedburg. Not much is known about Stump before his trials. We don't know where he was born or his age. We do know that he had a daughter named Beale Stump, who was a teenager, as well as a son. There is no mention made of his wife, although she may have already been dead. But in 1589, he was put on trial for having been a werewolf. Almost everything that we know about Peter Stump stems from a 16-page pamphlet published in 1590 that exists in English. You can read it for yourself. In fact, the only reason we do know that it wasn't all just made up is because it was published in the diaries of Hermann von Weidensberg of Cologne and in other broadsheets. From the language of the pamphlet, it is clear that the intention of the author is as much a religious warning as it is lurid entertainment, a trend that will continue throughout the early modern European period just for a taste in how much it is a religious warning, well, here's just a sample from the pamphlet. Quote, "...but of all that ever lived, none was comparable unto this hellhound, whose tyranny and cruelty did well declare he was of his father the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning, whose life and death and most bloody practices the discord following doth make just report." In the towns of Bedburg near Cologne in High Germany, there was continually brought up and nourished one Peter Stump, who from his youth was great inclined to evil, and the practicing of wicked arts even from the twelve years of age till twenty, and so forwards till his dying day, insomuch that suffering in the damnable desire of magic, necromancy, and sorcery, acquainting himself with many infernal spirits and fiends, insomuch that forgetting God that made his and that savior that shed his blood For man's redemption. So, yeah, it's a little steeped in the lingo. Peter Stump was accused of having made a pact with the devil to work his malice on men, women, and children in the shape of some beast whereby he might lie without dread or danger of life and unknown to be the executor of any bloody enterprise which he meant to commit. Now, this is a marked difference between the benevolent werewolf of the past. Because now the belief is not that men transform into wolves only because they physically wish to live unnaturally, but rather they transform into wolves so that they can act out their every desire unnaturally. In other words, they wish to participate in inhuman, unnatural desires. Imagine, a wolf rips apart a child at the edge of a village. It's a beast that needs put down, but no one argues that it isn't against its nature. A man rips apart an infant, well, that's a horror story. What this spotlights is a shift in the public's belief around werewolves. No longer are they transforming for the protection of the public, or for their own pleasure. Unnatural, perhaps, but not harming anyone else, maybe even helping them. They are now doing so, supposedly, to harm others. The transformation is described with this wickedness in mind. Quote, The devil who saw him, a fit instrument to perform mischief as a wicked fiend, pleased with the desire of wrong and destruction, gave unto him a girdle, which being put around him, he was straight transformed into the likeness of a greedy devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like unto brands of fire, a mouth great and wide, with most sharp and cruel teeth, "...a huge body and mighty paws, and no sooner should he put off the same girdle, but presently should appear in his former shape, according to the proportion of a man, as if he had never been changed." With this girdle, supposedly Peter Stump went on a rampage against those that had wronged him, "...and no sooner should they or any of theirs walk abroad in the field or about the city... In the shape of a wolf, he would presently encounter them, and never rest till he had plucked out their throats and tore their innards asunder. End quote. Afterwards, he would transform away from the horrified onlookers, and then he would interact with the friends and children of those he had killed. He also supposedly would lust after women and children, and when they were alone, quote, he would go into the fields and ravish them, and after in his wolfish likeness, cruelly murder them. End quote. He would run in the fields as a wolf between children playing, and as they ran in terror, he would chase one down, rape them, and tear out their throat. Over a few years, he supposedly murdered at least thirteen children and two pregnant women, quote, tearing children out of their wombs in a most bloody and sausage sort, and after eating their parts, panting hot and raw, which he accounted dainty morsels and agreeing to his appetite. End quote spectators would come across this place. There they would, quote, find the arms and legs of dead men, women, and children scattered up and down the field to their great grief and vexation of heart, End quote. And if all of these accusations weren't enough, he was also accused of incest with his own daughter, Beale, and having a child with her, as well as with a distant relative, Catherine, referred to as a sister in the text. Unsatisfied with these sexual assaults and, quote, With the company of many concubines, at length the devil sent unto him a wicked spirit in the similitude and likeness of a woman, so fair of face and comely of personage, that she resembled, rather, some heavenly angel than any mortal creature, so fair her beauty exceeded the chiefest sort of women, and with her as with his heart's delight. He kept company the space of seven years, though in the end she proved and was found indeed no other than a she-devil." So, the rape and murder of children and women, cannibalization, devil worship, incest, and fornication with a succubus. If this is starting to sound like an outlandish witch trial, well, it is. And before I continue, I should remind listeners who literally see every single one of these accusations as fiction, that there's a good possibility you're right. But as I mentioned in our Gilderay bonus episode and in our Hitman and Horoscopes episodes, there's a reason these cases came to light in the first place and it wasn't because they were made up on the spot. Medieval witch trials almost always included heaps of additional charges that are 99% false, but in order for accusations to even make it to trial, there needed to be that kernel of truth. The medievalists I've talked to agree, certain charges that make their way down into trials always strike them as stranger than fiction. Child rape and murder are extremely high on that list. So too would be lycanthropy. Although that doesn't necessitate it as real, it's noticeable enough for historians to give more credence to likely facts in the case. There's a good chance that there really were murders of children and women that had occurred, and it was probably gruesome enough for people to believe it was a wild animal. Perhaps it really was wild animals. There's also a high likelihood that it was a political and religious trial. The area had a high number of Protestants, and the Catholic leadership may have used it as a way to threaten the nobility back into the fold. There was a large number of nobility present at this trial, and seeing as which trials were uncommon but not rare, even a case involving lycanthropy attracting this much attention from the upper classes suggests something else was at play here. And then there's an interesting account in the pamphlet that just seems out of place. It details a girl who was attacked by the wolf but could not get through the collar of the coat, and a cattle nearby were spooked and charged the wolf, and he had to release the girl and left her unharmed it's just so different from the rest of the narrative, there's a good chance it actually may have occurred with the real wolf, and then it became attributed to Stump later on. Maybe Peter Stump was completely innocent and guiltless. Maybe some of the charges of murder and rape are true. Maybe he did dabble in folk practices misconstrued as magic, as we've seen before. Maybe he did murder all of these women. We don't know, but it's important to understand that in the context of a case like this, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the public... ...perception about lycanthropy. And Stump's case tells us a lot. It tells us that the benevolent werewolf is disappearing... ...and replacing him is the violent, bloodthirsty monster of a wolf. This is the werewolf of modern fantasy... ...the night terror on a full moon. For 25 years, Peter Stump went on a supposed rampage... ...killing an unknown number of men, women, children, and livestock... He was only caught after being cornered in a bloodhound hunt and the girdle stripped from his wolf form, reverting him back to human form. He was put on the rack and confessed before the torture could be fully meted out. He, his daughter, and Catherine were all sentenced to death, and Peter's execution was the worst. Quote, Peter Stump, as principal malefactor was judged first to have his body laid on a wheel, and with red, hot burning pincers in several places had the flesh pulled off from his bones. After that, his legs and arms broken with a wooden axe or hatchet afterwards to have his head struck from his body, then to have his carcass burned to ashes. End quote. His daughter and Catherine were burned at the stake as well. Stump's head was placed on a high pole, The wheel he was broken, framing it, and a likeness of a wolf strapped to the wheel, with sixteen pieces of wood placed around it to signify the sixteen people known to have been murdered by him. By the end of the 17th century, the werewolf trial had begun to fade away, although not in memory. The term werewolf had long become part of the folklore and ecclesiastical tradition. Fables and traditions were already being written about them, Although, more interestingly, the werewolf had become, of all things, a slur. Martin Luther referred to tyrants in his writings as the beer wolf. In France, the term loup-garou had become synonymous with uneducated and unkempt men. In fact, in 1681, Nassau banned the use of the terms witch, sorcerer, and werewolf to be applied to anyone on account of their inflammatory and dangerous history. As Laurie writes, quote, Now, in the beginning of the age of rationality, Most people were no longer content, as in the 15th and 16th centuries, with the information that something is as it is because God wants it, but they urged to know how. But by this point, the toll it had all taken was massive. Lori theorized that witch trials had constituted 80,000 to 100,000 victims. While only a minority of these were werewolf cases, That still puts the number in the thousands, possibly the tens of thousands. Out of these werewolf trials, the majority occurred in France and Germany, with about 30% of the cases against women. But what makes me wonder, as I'm sure it does you, is what were people thinking? Did people just confess willy-nilly when under the threat of torture? I'm sure some did, but it's telling that many confessed during time periods where torture was not even a threat. Someone like Thais, or later on like Romasanta. What gives? That takes us full circle back to the 19th and 20th centuries, in which clinical lycanthropy, a psychiatric condition in which a person believes they have been transformed into an animal, has been coined. In it, a person exhibits tendencies to behave like an animal or report behavior in themselves like an animal. It is a form of psychosis that has been clinically proven to exist, albeit very rarely, in individuals already diagnosed with another condition, such as schizophrenia, antisocial personality disorder, or bipolar disorder. Importantly, it seems to be a condition that can be onset by drugs and hallucinations, meaning that at least some people we've talked about in the witch trials may have actually believed they were in these states of beings from an outside trigger. For example, some of the herbs that were being used by witches in their sabbats actually would have created hallucinogenic Experiences, allowing them to collectively experience a hallucination. Now, these numbers are admittedly rare. Twelve patients admitted in a single decade period to the psychiatric McLean Hospital in Massachusetts were diagnosed over a ten-year period. Thirty cases were published by 2004. People reported shape-shifting into wolves, cats, horses, birds, frogs, even bees. But importantly it was also found, proven, that it's particular to the culture. Japan, for example, exhibited a higher transformation of foxes and dogs. Imagine a culture in which the supernatural is believed to exist in daily life as a branch of the natural world, and that one really can commune with it. It's not so far-fetched to believe that these small numbers of people that currently exhibit tendencies in a postmodern world built upon rationalism and science— would explode in numbers in the medieval age due to superstition. Multitudes of people rationalizing their behavior as something otherworldly. It's a real possibility, and it was in history. Medical textbooks dating back to ancient Greece claim lycanthropes as, quote, "...sufferers as melancholics, who are dangerous neither to themselves nor to others, and who suffer from severe dryness of the body." They roam out at night and mimic the way of wolves or dogs, and mostly loiter by the grave monuments until daybreak. Suggestions for treatment, alongside venesection and a light diet, include various pharmaceuticals intended to minimize the damaging influence of black bile in the body of the patient. Quote. And sources all over the Mediterranean agree, places as far as Alexandria and the Muslim Empire. Lycanthropy is found in medical and textbooks and encyclopedias all through this age. Even later sources agree, sometimes even as late as James I, who decreed that werewolves were evil, but that it too stemmed from the melancholic. It's this big circle in history of werewolves originally being conceived as tragic but heroic figures, like that of Thys, of people who are suffering from some sort of psychological condition, who can't actually turn into werewolves, and then it transformed into a belief that they physically could, and then from there to becoming a witch trial, and from there to evil killers like Stump, and now all the way back again. Modern psychologists believe Romasanta may have been one of the many historical figures that may have actually had these delusions of clinical lycanthropy, and could have been diagnosed. We'll never really know for sure, but it is clear that lycanthropy while not part of our physical reality, can still be a part of our mental, psychological one, as it has in history. And that is a fact that is stranger than fiction. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com.